You're listening to the Names Not Numbers podcast, the annual ideas festival produced by Editorial Intelligence. The Decline of the West and the Rise of China Chaired by Chief Business Commentator of the FT, John Gapper, in conversation with the author of When China Rules the World, Martin Jakes. Let's just start with a question. How many people here have been to China in the last five years? Fairly good majority, I would think. And America in the last five years? I think still America still wins. (laughs) Um, I remember going to Shanghai in 1992 when they hadn't built Pudong and uh, walking along the, uh, the Bund on the other side and talking to officials and they said, you know, we're about to build a set of skyscrapers in an entire financial district and it's going to take us five years. And we all thought, well, <laughs> that's not going to happen. And lo and behold, it did. Um, so uh, I think uh, a lot of us have learned that when the Chinese say certain things, they do them. Uh, Martin, your book is called When China Rules the World, not If. Why when? Uh, well, I think it's, I mean, who knows what will happen? No one knows the future. Um, but I think that uh, China's rise will continue. Um, there will be lots of problems. There will be setbacks. But we are witness to um, the greatest global economic transformation there's ever been. And the result of it will be uh, that China will become, uh, I think, in time, um, the leading power in the world. Um, I don't think it's ever going to rule the world. I was taking poetic license with the title. <laughs> uh, and um, I remember being in China a couple of years ago and talking again to a Chinese official about the question of why uh, China did not want to take more part in, in global institutions. Uh, and it was clearly a rich country, it was clearly a country that was becoming very powerful, and his reply, which I think is often typical of what you hear, is they said, you you don't understand, this is still a poor country, Uh, we are still developing. Uh, You go outside Beijing, you go outside Shanghai, into the center of uh, China, and there's still an entirely different country. Uh, They don't see themselves maybe as a threat or a coming, uh, an inevitable power in the way that perhaps we do. I agree with that. I think that, that I think that's correct. I mean, the, the Chinese, um, you, you correctly say, always stress the fact um, that they are a poor country, and you know, they that they are responsible for 1.3 billion people, fifth of the world's population, and it's a continent, and there's extraordinary unevenness across this. Uh, continent. It still only has a standard of living which is about a fifth of that of the United States. Um, the only reason they're a power in the world, or a, you know, a large economic power, um, is because they've got so many people. Uh, so they've got a, a very long way to go. But the second point, I think, is, it, that you uh, raise is, um, is a really interesting one, which is that the way the Chinese... Um, conceive of themselves uh, in the world is, I think, very different from the Western tradition. Um, I, don't, I, 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 I imagine that probably most people think, well, as China rises, it'll be, 
It'll be a bit like the United States in some shape or form in the way it expresses itself. You know, it'll become a great military power and all the rest of it. Uh, and I think probably this is wrong. Uh, I think that the whole Chinese tradition is, is very different from this. Um, you know, we tend to think that somehow um, the way the West has done things is emblematic of the way everyone else would do it. Well, actually, the Chinese, you know, the West, Europe, colonized the world, you know, and the United States in a different way sought to express a huge political and military influence uh, around the world. The Chinese basically never colonized. I mean, what they had in their uh, heyday was, until, which was until 1900, was a tributary system. But they didn't actually colonize any countries, uh, overseas countries. The, the only form of colonization you could argue, and you can argue uh, this, I think, is their westward expansion under the Qing dynasty from the mid-17th century. Um, but otherwise, the whole tra Chinese tradition is different. And the reason for this is, you know, they've got, a diff they've got a different way of thinking about themselves, their culture, the Middle Kingdom. Um, they do have a sense of universalism, but it's a very different kind of universalism to our own. Uh, one of the other things I think they, they talk about and worry about a lot in Beijing is that it's an unstable country. Uh, that, um, to paraphrase, the peasants could get out of control at any moment. Uh, it's happened before. Uh, the Cultural Revolution, revolutions before. Um, does that account for what appears to be sometimes a sort of paranoia at the leadership level about keeping the people under control? Yeah, I, I think you can, in some ways, you can use the term paranoia. Um, but I suspect uh, most Westerners think it's to do with the present leadership. But I think it's actually um, a characteristic of Chinese governance down the ages. And the reason is because, well, you've got to imagine it like this. You know, 2,000 years ago, um, Europe was united in the Holy Roman Empire plus beyond Europe. And China was just beginning the process of unification after the victory of the Qin Dynasty in 211 BC. And then the next 2,000 years, the histories of Europe and China went in utterly different directions. Europe broke into lots and lots of territories, and the default uh, mode of Europe to this day is the nation state. China went in exactly the opposite direction. It unified. And for 2,000 years, basically, it's been unified. But if you're running a country of that size, that scale, the centrifugal forces are incredibly strong. And from time to time, have overwhelmed the centripetal forces which have held China together. And the Chinese associate their worst periods in history when, they, uh, when these centrifugal forces have uh, been dominant. So, Chinese governance has been characterized down the ages, both imperial and the present communist era, uh, by a, a sort of mantra, if you like, unity, order, stability. And they know that, uh, you know, that it's very easy for things to go wrong. Um, they know uh, that uh, that often the things that destabilize them are things they don't know about because the country is so large. 
So I think that the whole way, the whole mentality, it's not just the leadership, the whole mentality of the Chinese, the Chinese psyche about governance is very different from ours. And the reason you know, is deeply rooted in the history of the country, the size of the country, and so on. A lot of what you talk about then is it's quite difficult to understand China through a Western frame. Um, you're not Chinese, and neither am I. Um, how, do you, how do you get to understand it? And if, as you suggest, this is a, something that's going to become more and more important in our lives, how do we get to understand it? With great difficulty. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, when I was working on the book, um, the more I thought about it, the more I was uh, intrigued by what I'll say is the difference that is China. You know, the difficulty with the Western mentality is that for 200 years, we've dominated culture, ways of thinking, let alone the economy, military, and so on. So actually, um, we have not really been open beyond the point to other cultures, other ways of thinking, and so on. We've thought that ultimately progress is about Westernization is about becoming like us. You know? um, and this is a tremendous weakness, I think, in Western culture in an era when actually the center of gravity is going somewhere else and we are going to be in the position where we will need to learn from something else. But we've never done this to any culture because at the end of the day, we could always get our own way because we're economically dominant. If necessary, we could um, exercise our military force. Uh, so... Um, so now, we've, well now we're confronted with the task of making sense of China. And it is going to be extremely difficult because, very quickly, you know, in my view, China isn't really a nation state or is only secondary a nation state. It is really a civilization state. That has huge implications for the whole way in which China works. Uh, we've been talking a bit about the nature of governance and the state in China, and this is really important. I mentioned the tributary system and the traditions of China in this respect. I could talk about ethnicity and the way in which, you know, this is a most peculiar country because over 90% of 1.3 billion people believe themselves to be of the same race. I mean, there's no other hugely populous country in the world like that. So there are so many... To understand China, the only way can, we can understand China is starting, start by accepting that it is very different from Western societies and it will remain very different. And only if we understand China in its specificity can we make sense of it. And in my view, this is going to take the whole of this century for Westerners be, to begin to come to terms with this. This is not a short-term operation. And, and one of the things I think that we think about or in the context of China quite a lot, uh, and perhaps it, it's framed as a Tom Friedman view of, of China, which uh, he expresses as something like, look, they've got this far, it's been very impressive, they've built an awful lot of buildings, they have fantastic subways, uh, they've got an awful lot of money and we don't. Uh, however, they are reaching the point when people uh, want not just nice handbags and a good subway. They want freedom, freedom of expression. They are, in other words, inevitably reaching the point when 
they cannot be contained in the traditional way. And beyond that, the economy itself will need to get more sophisticated. And when you, when you need a more sophisticated economy, you need more sophisticated people and you need freedom. So what do you say to that? Uh, as, they, they, the, as the economy becomes more sophisticated, yes, it's true that the individuals, the sense of individual identity will become more important and so on. But it'll take place within a particular cultural context. It doesn't take place in the abstract. It doesn't take place in, within, a, within a Western environment. I mean, if you look at China today compared with 30 years ago, I mean, the levels of personal freedom now are unparalleled compared with what they were then. They, they wouldn't be satisfactory to us, but they, there's been a huge transformation, and that process will, and will continue, in my view, but it will take place within the cultural and historical context of China. And the trouble with Friedman and thinkers like this is that, you know, their d desire to sort of homogenize the world, if you like. You know, homogenize the world, of course, means everyone's going to end up like us. Yes, it was very striking, actually. I was looking at a picture of Tiananmen Square in uh, 1989. Um, and uh, it's, of course, striking if you go to Tiananmen Square today that the picture of Mao still is on the gate of heavenly peace, but there used to be pictures of Lenin and Stalin opposite him uh, looking back. Uh, they're not there anymore. Um, which brings us, I suppose, to the party. Uh, there's a, a, a view which I think a lot of people as visitors to uh, China have. You meet Chinese officials. Uh, you have very sophisticated conversations about the nature of the economy, about the nature of the country. They're very thoughtful people. They're supreme technocrats. They're extremely well-educated. They're willing to debate all sorts of topics. And you think, my goodness, these people are fantastic. If only the whole world was run by these people. Uh, and then you discover that corruption is endemic throughout the party, that uh, Wen Jibao's family probably had billions stashed away. Uh, the Bourgeois uh, scandal has, has uh, uncovered a huge amount of corruption uh, and endemic problems within the party. And you think, hold on a minute, these people aren't very clever technocrats. They're just very sophisticated crooks. So what's the correct view? <laughs> Well, it, it is, you're absolutely right that corruption is endemic to China. Um, I don't think this is a new phenomenon, <laughs> because I think corruption's always been a, a very serious problem in China. Um, the, it, it, it's got, in my view, I mean, the difficulty with corruption is you never know what the scale of it is, you know, by definition. But it, it, I think the evidence suggests it's got worse. Um, and uh, I, so, and Xi, I think the reason Xi Jinping and the present leadership are, are, are attacking corruption to the cost of many uh, Western and particularly European uh, high roller brands <laughs> and the demand for them uh, is because it's been relatively successful. Um, but I, I think this is a problem, and I, 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 you know, I, I think that the Wenjie, I mean, assuming the New York Times figures have got some you know, are not reasonably authentic. That's a very serious problem, which I think uh, uh, is, is uh, you know, they, they, they're going to have to do something about that. Maybe they can't, but I think, okay. I think this is a problem. Let's um, have a question or two from, uh, from the audience. Isabel? You know a thing or two about China. One or two things. Martin and I have battled this out before <laughs> in public. Um, I think just listening to you this time, Martin, it occurs to me that when you talk about China's lack of vocation for conquest, 
uh, compared to the West, you're probably, it seems to me you're looking in the wrong place. That you mentioned the Western expansion, which was a war of military conquest, as you know, under the Manchu, uh, which happened at the same time as Russia. The, China, the Manchu Empire was moving west at the same time as the Russian Empire was moving east. And in subsequent history, you have exactly the same, oh, very close patterns of population movement and explicit state-sponsored colonization. In Xinjiang in the 50s, led by the military, explicit colonization. In Tibet now, explicit colonization. These are state-sponsored projects. Now this, you know, in 1644 would have been regarded as the near abroad and is now, you know, <laughs> has always been part of China. Always should be understood in the Chinese political conversation as unchangeable as of today, not as a reference to the past, as I'm sure you appreciate. And I think that there's a, there's a danger in trying to, uh, just as there's a danger in trying to understand China in Western terms, there's a danger in trying to deconstruct it entirely in Western terms too. And, and that, I think, is the, is the error of misperception that, 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 I, that, I, that I think you sometimes make. I don't know whether I completely understand the last point, but a lot of what you say I agree with. Um, uh, I mean, specifically on the question of Xinjiang province and Tibet, uh, it seems to me that... Uh, that this is the, the Chinese government policies failed uh, since 1949, um, and the uh, and you can see this in really the heavy suppression of both the Uyghur and the Tibetans. Um, and the reason it's this not is forty percent of the land mass. But yeah, in case people 40, don't understand the, the map, China yeah. is twice as big as it was in the 17th century. Yeah, true. Um, the the reason it's not destabilize the country uh, is because there are, well, there are a number of reasons, but a crucial reason is because there aren't many Uyghur and there are not many Tibetans. So it's, as you say, half the land mass, but only 6% of the population of China. So, uh, so that's why it hasn't had uh, the degree of kind of kickback that it would have done under different circumstances. Okay. Um, yeah. the rest of the century to understand China, isn't that just classic Orientalism? And why would it take so much longer to understand China relative to, say, Central Africa or a Russian mentality for those of us who aren't close to it? What is it that you particularly see as being un difficult to understand about China? Well, I, I, I think the same... In, in, in varying degrees would go for other cultures as well. And then I think this is a Western problem, if you like. Uh, the reason why it, China serves it up in a different way is because, China, because of, the, of the rise of China and the growing power of China and the likely position of China, then this is something we can't ignore. So, so, it's, it, so it's more economic than cultural? Hmm? So it's more economic than cultural? No, well, it's... It, it presents itself as a problem for us because China is very huge and is, and is being very successful and is going, in my view, over the course of the next century, to displace the position of the West. Um, and so we are confronted with it in a different way to how we're confronted with Africa. I mean, we might not like it like that, but that, it seems to me, is the reason for it. Now, uh, the reason I think it's going to take a long time is because, actually, we, as a culture, 
are not uh, uh, adept or we're not, we're not versed in understanding other cult cultures. I mean, of course there are exceptions. There's a wonderful book by Ruth Benedict uh, uh, on Japan, American, written in 1944, 45. Uh, uh, is it The Sword and the Chrysanthemum of the Sword? This is a fantastic book, in my view, about Japan and understanding a different culture. So it's not that we can't do it, but by and large, we don't do it. You know, I mean, I'll give you another example of they'll be treading, going off somewhere else. We don't understand Russia. I'm sorry, with the reason we've got into this situation now is because we don't really understand Russia. And we don't want to understand Russia. And we always want to, you know, we're happy with Yeltsin because we thought Yeltsin was going to roll over and be Western. And Russia would be Western. And it's never going to be Western in that sort of way. So this is a tremendous challenge for us. And China, I think, because, uh, I mean, it, it is also true that it is all, I mean, there's another feature of China, and that is that China historically um, has existed, long continuously existing polity in the world. Yeah? And uh, it's never been colonized. Well, the treaty ports, but basically it hasn't been colonized. So if you ask me why uh, Westerners think India is going to succeed before China, you know, the hare and the tortoise and all these kind of arguments. Actually, Westerners feel comfortable with India in a way they don't feel comfortable with China. Why? Because they can see themselves in India because of the colonial legacy. Because they can see so many institutions in India which are familiar to them and they think, well, that's going to work. Just like the United States in the 1950s predicted the most successful East Asian country would be the Philippines. Why? Because the Americans colonized the Philippines, so they thought it was going to be successful. Okay, Martin. I think uh, we've got plenty to debate. <laughs> We're going to have to debate it afterwards. Uh, let's give a round of applause for Martin. This podcast was produced by Sarah Peters for Editorial Intelligence. With thanks to Vodafone, FT Weekend, CNN, GQ and all the partners and participants who made and make Names Not Numbers possible. Thank you for listening. <laughs>